Welcome everybody to this episode that is chuck full of gold nuggets designed to save you boatloads of time, stress, and money. Have you ever heard the saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure? Of course you have. Well, this next hour is more like an ounce of prevention is worth 20 pounds of cure. What do I mean? Well, on the last episode, we spoke about the macro levels on how to view your next 10 to 20 years of investing of where and what type of asset to invest in. Now we dive into the micro level, which is much more focused on the nuts and bolts of how to buy, renovate, and stabilize your investments to give you the best experience so you don't get sidetracked and you feel confident in doubling down on what we talk about on every episode. David and I dive into crucial topics about how to choose the right realtor or wholesaler and the proper questions to ask them so you can filter out all the duds out there. How to decode a real estate property description so you can read between the lines and see that what is omitted from a description might actually be more important than what is actually written. Also, how to look at your renovation budget in a reverse fashion, and most importantly, how to analyze that property correctly so that you can feel confident when you make your offer that it's the right number. So stick around, take notes on this episode. It's for you if you're looking to buy your first investment or if you own a few, but maybe your experience hasn't gone the way you wanted it to, we're gonna help right your ship. So let's get started. Ever wonder what burn your boats means? Picture this, 10, 15, 20 years from now, you are living your best life. You are not bound by the chains of a W-2 income. You're traveling, watching your children grow, being present in their lives. You're fulfilling all of your dreams and ambitions. Burn the Boats is a powerful metaphor for making positive changes in life and moving forward despite challenges. It means creating a new reality by breaking free from old habits, people, and tools that hold you back. Burning your boats is when you realize your worth, your value, and you make the choice to create change. Clark and David are successful real estate investors who understand the importance of wealth creation and breaking free of financial anxiety. They believe that anyone can achieve this by thinking differently, learning new skills, and saying no to things that do not align with your goals. This podcast highlights pivotal moments and milestones in life that can set you on a new path towards realizing your full potential. Make the choice to join Clark and David and their guests as they share their own experiences and what they have learned to do and not to do in real estate investing and share how you too can start your journey in creating meaningful wealth and live the life you deserve. Welcome, everybody, to the Burn Your Boats podcast. I'm Clark Lunt, and I'm here with my co-host, David Shaw. David, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Clark. Uh, it's, uh, it's great to be back in sunny Florida. Yeah, yeah. Where, where were you at last week? I was out in Vail skiing for a week, uh, just enjoying all the perks and benefits of real estate. That, that's, that's amazing. I know that you were out for, for a couple days, and uh, you know, I know it's good to kind of clear your head, get some new vision for the future, and uh, I'm sure it felt great. Yeah, it did. But uh, equally, you're not doing too shabby yourself for anybody watching this on uh, video. Clark, 
You look like you're uh, living the life there <laughs> underwater, um, you know, multi-million dollar mansions around you. How's that working out? Uh, it's not the worst thing in the world to be to be shooting in, in Bel Air, Florida, uh, just south of Clearwater. And I've got uh, multi-million dollar houses, a big, huge yacht just passed by me. So there's worse places for me. And, and, and it's all due to uh, being able to get into real estate and uh, have that kind of uh, traction and motivation to be able to do these kind of cool things. So I'm not complaining yeah, one bit, David. It's very much why we do real estate. The, the reason we, yeah. we have these conversations here is that we want to get very clear to people that real estate is ultimately uh, a mechanism for buying freedom, the freedom to it do is. whatever you want, the freedom to follow your own passions, whatever your passions are, the freedom to spend time with your kids, the freedom to spend time with your parents as they get older. You know, uh, So you're not running out the door saying, I don't have time for my folks. They're going to need you as they get older. Real estate gives you freedom to follow all of your human wants and needs instead of having to show up to something you might dislike, something that is passive aggressive. You might you know, be in a, an office environment that you just can't stand anymore. Planning and planting seeds in real estate is why we have this podcast. So, Clark, with that being said, why, why are we recording today? What are we going to talk about? So it, last week, we had a great discussion on, on the episode about talking to kind of newbie investors that are probably looking to buy something sort of turnkey to be able to start creating wealth through building a rental portfolio, right? So we talked a little bit kind of high level 10,000 foot view on way, things to look at, areas to buy in, areas not to buy in. Uh, and it, it was more of a high level. And then we started talking about it after we finished the episode. And we're like, David, there's like a million other things that we didn't even mention on that. So we were like, we got to do a part B. So here we are. We're talking part B. Uh, and if you're listening to this right now, we're talking to the person that might be a little bit more interested in maybe buying it, maybe putting in some sweat equity themselves, maybe interested in more of a discount on the property versus buying fully retail turnkey. So that is going to be the episode today is talking about things that you need to be looking for, maybe some mistakes to avoid. If you are physically interested in buying the property yourself, going in, doing some upgrades, kind of being more involved in the tenant process, the property management process. So that's what we're here to talk about today. And I think we're going to be able to provide a lot of value. And hopefully the listener will, will miss out on a lot of mistakes that we've made in the past that they can benefit from. So maybe after buying about a thousand homes between us, we've got a thing or two to add on this one, right? So you would, you would hope so. First things first. Okay. Let's With that in. being said, you know, getting into the micro details rather than the big macro. I would yep. agree with you, Clark. I think that a lot of podcasts are out there. They talk very high level, very mindset level. Um, and and as a you know, when I look back at you know my own journey, I would love if people had spoken more about the actual facts, the actual details, the micro details. Like, what can I do right now that that can save me this mistake or that mistake? And this is about learning and and avoiding or at least knowing the pitfalls of trying to buy a house trying to flip a house, you know, trying to create sweat equity. Because at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of turnkey buyers out there. But there yeah. are millions of people out there who want to, like, get a little bit of value up front. They see a fixer-upper down the street. They feel that they want to buy it. And so that's what today's podcast is going to be. So where does all of that start, Clark? It starts with the acquisition. You see a fixer-upper right. down the street or you see a fixer-upper on Zillow. Where do we go from there? What's the first thing we need to talk about? Usually people will reach out to a realtor or a wholesaler or something like that. Let's talk about the acquisition on the very, very the first step, talking to somebody who's a seller. So realtor, go ahead. So I would say the majority of people are going to probably reach out to a realtor to help 
them send listings uh, that are available for them to buy, right? That would be a good rental property, right? And I think one of the big mistakes that people do is they use their brother or they use their friend or they, they just use someone that they're already comfortable with. And I, I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of do you, do you eat your own cooking, okay? So if I'm interviewing realtors, which you should absolutely do, is if I want to buy an investment property, I want to buy I want someone that's going to help me that's already ate their cooking. They have investment properties. So to me, it makes total sense to work with a realtor that owns rental properties so they've gone through some mistakes and they can see things that are going to make it easier and this would be a good property because of this reason, because it's already got these things fixed, whatever the case may be. So number one thing to take away is I would only, my, me personally, would only want to work with a realtor that's already done what I want to do and they have an experience in it. It's that simple, right? They don't have to own 100 properties, but just to, what, talking, working with a realtor that's never bought an investment property to me just doesn't make sense. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think oh, working with a, a a realtor who doesn't own even a small portfolio themselves, they just simply don't have the experience and they won't have the empathy. And so right. the reasons why you would want to work with a realtor who owns a portfolio themselves is they will know what neighborhood to go to. They yeah. will know what vintage home to to buy. You know, don't buy a 1920s home. You know, you don't have to buy a new build either. So the realtor who has a portfolio is just going to be able to help you avoid a lot of mistakes and bring you to that, what I describe as the, the, the property that as Goldilocks porridge. You know, it's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's just right. So a realtor who has a portfolio is going to, and he's also going to understand the numbers. A realtor who has a portfolio is going to understand what underwriting is, going to understand all of the inputs on underwriting, which we're going to talk about a little bit later on. So a realtor right off the bat, buying from a realtor or buying using a realtor's assistance, always ask for um, information about their own portfolio. Now, a lot of people will also reach out to wholesalers. Um, if you don't know what a wholesaler is, a wholesaler is a person who goes out. He sends we want to, you know, he, he sends out marketing like we, we buy houses. We want to buy houses, you know, quick, quick. Um, Quick close, you know, that kind of stuff. And then we'll, we'll get the property under contract and then sell that contract to an investor and make a, you know, five, 10 or 15, $20,000 um, acquisition fee in, in between. Now, wholesalers do not have your best interest at heart. Clark, what do you've got to say about wholesalers? Cause you used to be a wholesaler. So I, what can I you did. tell me if you're, if you're reaching out to wholesalers and wholesalers seem to have good deals in your neighborhood, what do you, what are the things that people should look out for when they're dealing with a wholesaler? Yeah, it's a great question. And I was a wholesaler for probably four or five years, which is really how I began my full-time investing career. So I can walk a, a mile in their shoes. Uh, when you're building relationships with wholesalers, typically a lot of the wholesalers, it's it's kind of the, the low barrier of entry. So a lot of the wholesalers haven't been in real estate a, a tremendous amount of time. It's kind of like the first step, right? So usually they don't own a tremendous amount of portfolio per se. I would pick up the phone, talk to these wholesalers on the phone, tell them exactly what you want and say, look, I want a property that's in this area that doesn't need more than X amount in repairs and it needs to get, you know, Y amount in rent, right? So be very specific so that when they do come across that deal that may fit within your, your box per se, 
that they're going to pick up the phone and call you first. You need to make that human connection because if you don't, you're just another guy on their email list and they're going to try and squeeze every single dollar out of it. But if you, if you pick up the phone and you talk and you say, I want to get my first rental property. I don't want to spend more than 250000 I don't want it to be more than $20,000 in renovation and it needs to rent for X. The more specific you can be, the easier it is for you to paint the picture to the wholesaler, which means it's going to be easier for them to find that deal and, and reach out to you first before they just blast it out to the, the whole world. And I've done a couple of hundred deals with wholesalers that uh, I've purchased from. So let me give you my, my 10 cents on it. The wholesaler's opinion of the after renovation value, always treat that with a level of suspicion. Um, be very, very clear that a wholesaler's opinion of the value when you've done all your renovations is always his very much op his most optimistic opinion. He doesn't give you, he doesn't bring any kind of conservative thinking to his opinion. So in my experience, you take the uh, after renovation value, a wholesaler quotes you, verify it, and it's usually about at least 10% uh, <laughs> below what they are quoting. Secondly, a wholesaler will also give you an idea of what they think their renovation value is. The wholesaler, in, in you know, in their defense, they're going to they're going to look at the condition of the physical property and say, okay, well, it's got a roof. It needs it needs a roof. It needs a electrical panel. It needs air conditioning. It needs windows. It needs doors, floors, baseboards, all of that. But I very I'm almost never had a wholesaler say, yeah, well, we need to put a new fence around. We need to put in some nice landscaping. We need to put irrigation in here because these are the never. things you actually have to do. So if you're buying from a wholesaler. Always, always do your own um, scope of work and always add everything. From the moment you get out of your car and walk towards that house, everything that you see, trees, fences, the driveway, the front patio, the flower beds, the garage door, the side gate, everything. Start adding everything up that's not retail perfect. Added everything inside the house, floors, doors, baseboards, kitchens, bathrooms, you know, a funky layout, everything there. And then go into the backyard and say, okay, do I need to do fencing here? Do I need to do more landscaping here? Is there a, you know, is there a, a junk shed in here? So all never take a wholesaler's ARV and scope of work as a legitimate guide to what it's going to be. Do your own work. We're going to, we're going to help you a lot with that in this, in this podcast today. David, let me give you a few buzzwords that I see and I cringe, right? So I get, and it could be on the MLS too. So this could be the realtor is, you know, you want to find out the big things, the roof, the AC, the plumbing, the electric, the, the, the very expensive things, yeah. which don't really make the value of the rent. That's what we're talking about. People are going to buy investment properties to build their wealth creation, right? Just because you have a new roof, the tenant doesn't really care, right? So they're not going to pay more for it because it's got a new roof, right? No. So here are the buzzwords, ready? I see it every single day. A uh, roof doesn't leak. AC blows cold, uh, uh, electrical seems good, uh, plumbing, the toy, you know, I turn the shower on and it works fine, right? You know what is that if the plumbing had been updated in 2018 with repipe, you think they would mention that on the ad? Of course they would, right? Because that, that builds value into the, the, the eyes of the buyer. When you see a roof that quote unquote doesn't leak, 
B, run, just know that that needs a new roof, right? That's just terminology. Yeah. It doesn't leak today, but when you get handed the keys, it will start leaking the next day. So whenever you see those buzzwords where they're not specific about what year it was replaced, AC is 2015. Okay, cool. I know that AC is eight, nine years old, right? The minute they say the AC blows cold, unsure of the age, just know that you're probably going to have to replace it. And we're going to get into this in a little bit about getting the inspection and doing that. Trust nothing that is on those. And the minute that they're very general, just know that you, that means you're going to have to dig that much deeper before you uh, truly understand the scope of work. Yeah, well, this is a great segue. Uh, and I, I absolutely agree with everything you've just said is I know that anybody selling a house is very proud of what's new. And right. so they will tell you about <laughs> it all day long. And so simply by the fact that items are, there's an emission on the roof, the AC, the plumbing, the electric, or anything else. If they don't specifically tell you it's new, assume that it's old. So yeah. I buy houses in the judicial foreclosure auctions, which is, you know, I, I buy it at 11 o'clock in the morning and I own it at four that afternoon, you know, and I don't get to see it. And my start off point is I, I people say, how do you buy? How do you buy a house sight unseen? I'm like, it's very easy. I allow for two bathrooms, a roof, floors, doors, baseboards, kitchen, AC. I start off allowing for everything. And I, if I see anything, I'll take it off the list. But I start off knowing that I've got to do everything, and I take it back down from there. And I make my offers uh, according to to uh, me having to replace everything. So always start off on the acquisition side as if you have to do everything until something or somehow you verify otherwise. So nice segue here onto underwriting. Clark, people come to me all the time. So we're talking about buying the property. How you buy it, realtors, wholesalers, what to look out for, what not to. But underwriting. People come to me all the time and say, hey, David, I was on Zillow last night and I saw this house. It's got a $50,000 discount. Do you think that's a good deal? <laughs> I'm like, I simply don't know. I have no idea. If, I have no idea whatsoever if this is a good deal or not. I'd have to do the underwriting. They're like, what do you mean? And this is amazing. Realtors. How many realtors do you know that you ask them to do the underwriting and they're like, um, completely stumped how many yeah. people have you met who are investors and they don't know how to do any kind of long form underwriting uh, underwriting is your it's the most important tool it's the most important skill you can have in real estate without it you can't move forward it's like a painter not having a paintbrush yeah and 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 that goes to like if if you're if you're interview going back to the acquisitions very quickly if you're interviewing realtors and they're like yeah yeah this is what i provide you here's a here's a listing and here's the pro forma, and they actually say rent and then expenses. Here is your, uh, you know, your your net operating income, and then they, uh, this this is unicorn status. But if they were actually able to factor in the interest, current interest rates on the debt that you're going to put on the property and show you how much money you're going to make or not make, uh, please go buy that realtor a steak dinner and don't let him work with anyone else and only work with him. Now I know it's a unicorn, but that's something yeah. to look for. Is that it, here's here's another like I feel like buzz terms, right? When I say, "Hey, Mr. Realtor, tell me about this property. Can you kind of send me the performance of the property, right?" And they say, "Well, it rents for two thousand dollars." Okay, well that's one of fifteen pieces of information that I need. So, David, what are some things? that people when they're looking to analyze these properties to truly understand if you're going to if it's going to be a zero or a hero right give us give give the listener some some key things key metrics that they need to factor in to take out real life scenarios real life repairs so what would the, what does that look like in your head okay so imagine for a minute i'm buying a house 
I've got either a wholesaler or a realtor working on my behalf. You're talking about the unicorn realtor. Well, this is what the unicorn realtor would actually give you. Just work out from the very beginning. You're going to buy the house so that you've got acquisitions fees. So you've got closing costs. If you're going to take out any kind of hard money, you're going to have origination fees. Are you going to take a loan of any sort whatsoever? You might be buying it with cash, but you're going to have to refinance it further out. So understand right David, quickly, top. quickly talk about, you mentioned hard money and origi origination fees. Not everyone's going to know exactly what that is. So quickly tell us what a hard money and origination fees are. Okay. So hard money is just when you're buying a property that needs a lot of repairs that a bank, an ordinary commercial bank won't lend on because it, it, you know, it's not up to snuff just yet. So what a lot of real estate investors do is they go out and they get what's called hard money. There's a lot of companies out there. They're short-term loans. They're usually up to about a year. And yep. they're, they range anywhere in interest from 9 to, let's say, 12%. And you might pay 1% or 2% in origination fees. That's how the lender makes their money. So you, you buy the property with their money. It needs a lot of repairs. You use their money to do the repairs. And then at the end of the year, when or the, you know, six months from now, when the renovation is complete, then you sell the home and you pay back that hard money. So that's, how a, lot of, that's how a lot of short-term investors and finance their deal and, and that's why a lot of people out there will hear oh you buy this house with no money down what they're actually doing is they're using hard money so Got let's it. get back into this let's get back to underwriting so in order to underwrite clark you need to understand all of your acquisition fees then we move on so that's the cost of buying the property then we go, go on to the cost of renovating the property i just i just explained it so it's everything everything that costs a dollar needs to be written down Every single thing, every doorbell, you know, the mailbox, yep. the fence, the landscaping, the grass, the irrigation, the flowers, the flower bed, the front door, the windows, every one of the windows, the floors when we get in, the baseboards, everything, every single thing. It, it sounds easy, but when you go in and you really do your 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 underwriting and you're adding in your scope of work your scope of work is really important that you get everything in there and i mean everything spend half an hour or an hour in there writing down everything i need 15 fans i need 22 doors i need closet doors i need you know 92 sets of blinds i need you know stainless steel um, appliances i need every single thing in that house and then go out the back door and say, okay, do I need to replace these doors? What about the patio? What about the deck? What about the fencing? What about the trees in the backyard? What about the exterior painting? Everything in there. So we were talking earlier on about wholesalers giving you a, a renovation, a scope, a renovation scope of work. And say, oh, it's $46,000 worth of work. It's my experience that it's usually about $20,000 more than that when you actually include Always. everything in there. Every time. So un underwriting starts with knowing all of your costs of acquisition. Then knowing all of your costs of renovation. And then at the end of that renovation, we're going to start, are we going to flip it? So then I need to know what my disposition costs are, how much I'm going to have to pay a realtor to sell it for me. It could be 3%, could be 6%. Um, how much am I going to have to give the buyer in, 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 in seller concessions? How much I'm going to have to um, do in inspection items and things like that? That's if I'm going to flip it and you know take a short-term profit on the property, or let's say I'm going to keep it at that point in time. So I've done my full renovation, and at that point in time, I'm going to have to 
Um, I've got a stabilizer, so I'm going to put a tenant in. I'm going to bring a property manager in. But I'm still going to have a lot of costs in closing costs, getting a mortgage on it, getting that mortgage uh, approved. So all of this goes into your underwriting. And Clark, why do we have to have an add all of this up? And then we have a number. And that's our real acquisition and hold or our acquisition and, and disposition number. And that is the magic number. What do we do with that number? When we have that number, Clark, what do we do with that number then? So we now know what the seller is asking for. Right. We know all of our inputs. What do we do with that number, Clark? What's the next step? So you, when a lot of times people think, well, how do I know what to offer? Right. And so, and basically if we know and went through the steps that we just discussed, right? We've kind of figured out what we think it's going to, what it's going to be worth once it's fixed up. We add in all the costs that you just alluded to from the repairs to the, to the uh, maintenance costs, to, to the vacancy rates, to everything. We subtract all that out. And then what's left? The number that we can pay based on the amount of equity that we want to have in the property when we're done with it, right? So ultimately, I kind of have a pretty good idea if I pay, if I do all this renovation the right way, and I know it'll be worth this much at the end of it, how much money do I want to have gotten paid for that and in, in, in equity in the property when I'm finished? Do I want to work for free, right? So we want to avoid having a house that let's say it's worth 350 when it's all fixed up, right? And it needs, let's say, 50 grand and all the fees that you just alluded to. Why would you buy that for 250000 You just work for free. So you want to figure out, well, if I want to have X amount of percent of uh, equity in the property, then I need to buy it for 215 or 210 or two or whatever your, your number is that you have. Without everything that you just went through, you have no idea what to offer. And then what are we even talking about at the end of the day? You're just shooting blind. You're just shooting fish at a barrel at that point. That's right. I think that's the most important thing that you're going to learn if you are um, somewhat new to this business, what Clark has just said. You will not know what to offer. The, the seller's asking price, by the way, is irrelevant. Irrelevant. It is, a, it is a number in their head that's got nothing to do with what we're going to pay in the real world. What matters is that you understand what the value of the home will be when you have done all of these repairs. And you should know one thing. If you come in and you're a slumlord and you do $5,000 worth of upgrades to a, to a rundown house, your value, your after renovation value is going to be a lot less than if I come in and I do $95,000 worth of beautiful upgrades to a home. So understanding your ARV, your after renovation value, where do you get that number from? Because that's the other number, Clark, that we need to know. There's three yep. things that are important in this business. We need to know our scope of work, right? We need to know our after renovation value. And then we make our offer price. And so, only then. And only then. So that's exactly right. You do not make an offer until you know exactly what all of your inputs are, all of your costs. And then you know the value of the home. And then obviously, we want a bit of equity. So we're going to put that into our right. uh, underwriting as well. So let's just talk briefly. Let's help everybody uh, listening. But understanding the value of a home seems to be a difficult enough to do for a lot of people. So Clark, what do you do to understand the value of a home? You can ask a realtor and they're going to give you some comps here, there, 
they might be they might be accurate they might not how do you get the value of a home sorry. so i'll just give you some quick bullet points um i when i have a house and i look at it and i want to find out what the value could be probably and what the value currently is First of all, I'm going to look at sales that have ha lasted within the last 90 days that have actually closed. Uh, so I don't want to go back six months or a year. The market is topsy-turvy. It's changing every day. I want to make sure I get fairly up-to-date data. And then I also want to look at houses that are pending within the last 60 to 90 days. And also I want to look at active listings as well too. So I want to make sure that what house that sold last month, is there an active listing that's listed for less than the actual house that sold 30 days ago, because now that now that means that I even though that house sold for that, by the time I buy it, do some renovations, and let's say they refinance it, it's not going to be worth that if there's active listings that are less than what the house down the street sold for. So I want to make sure that I'm looking at detailed information that's very close in the time frame. I want to make sure that the square footage is within 10%. So if a house is a thousand square foot, I don't want to look at a 1800 square foot house and I don't want to look at a 500 square foot house. I want to look within probably 10 to 15% of the square footage. I want to make sure that the time that I'm looking at it is very, very tight within say 60 to 90 days. And then I also want to look at the type of house, right? Like if you have, like we have a lot of like modern houses or traditional houses or bungalows, right? In, in our Tampa St. Pete area. I don't necessarily want to take a bungalow house that looks like it was built in 1925 and compare it to a 1956 concrete block kind of blase house, right? They're not the same house. They may be a different buyer. So those are three things. Just looking at the physical house, does it look similar to the house that I'm comparing with? Is it within the same time frame that it's sold or is active? And then also the same size. So those are three quick, quick things you can look at to make sure that you're comparing apples to apples. I think that's gold. Um, I'm not going to reiterate everything you said yep. because it was perfect. Um, we're going to do uh, an acquisitions podcast to really, really help yeah. you and um, get deep into the into the weeds of acquisitions and um, and defining an after renovation value, but. Suffice it to say, for today's podcast, you have to know your after renovation value. Because once I know all my costs, my acquisitions costs, my renovation costs, my disposition costs, or my refinance costs, and I know my after renovation value, I could take my after renovation value, they call it an ARV. You get your ARV and you minus your costs from there. And now we've got our all in cost. But then, Usually, you know, flippers are people who are going to do a renovation, Clark. They usually want to make some profit or some equity, right? And that's typically, in my world, is about 15%. So if okay. I've got a, a $100,000 house, make the numbers easy, I want to be all in. My purchase cost, all my renovations, and all my refinance costs for 85%. In this case, $85,000 just yep. to make the numbers easy. So and then yep. I want $15,000 worth of equity or profit if I flip it. Would that be fair? That, that would be fair. And I, I, that's so important. It's so hard to get that number out of a lot of uh, investors is how, how, much, how much profit should I have? So if you just take 100,000, I want 15 for, for me, for my time, my blood, my sweat, my tears. Let's say the renovation is $20,000 and all the costs that are incorporated in with that. So it's 20,000, so 85 minus 20, that's 65. So basically I know that I, the most I can pay for that house if I wanna keep this property and I wanna have some equity in it and get paid for my time is around 65,000. So maybe I start at 55, 
uh, maybe start at 50, knowing that I can go up to 65. So now I've got a game plan going in to be able to make that offer through the realtor. So $65,000 is your number, Clark, right? That's your number. That's it. It's That's not, it. this is not a casino. So you want to go out, you want to make an offer in this property. It's listed, you know, after do, after inputting all of your information, now you know that your offer price is $65,000, but the seller is asking $90,000, right? right? So this is where people trip up. <laughs> I go in and I say, I'll pay you 65. That's my highest and best offer right there. That's it. And then they, they come in and they'll say, well, you know, the seller wants 85. The seller, he's going to counter you at 79. No, my offer is 65. You never move off that. Um, and then they'll come back and they say, okay, look, we'll, we'll, we'll do 75. Your number is, it, it, quite simply, your number is 65. That's your number. And so this is where the power of understanding that your underwriting is a clear number. It's, a, it's, it's not malleable. It's not negotiable. It's yeah. not something you're willing to creep up or down. It, you have to have strict discipline in knowing your number and sticking to that number. And if this, do, if this house doesn't work for this number, the seller is either unrealistic or you can sell it to somebody for more. That's fine. We're driven only by numbers. We're driven only by facts. We're driven only by data. And we're never driven by emotion. Never as investors. Is that fair? It is. And to, your, to that last word, I was hoping you were going to say it, is it, it is your babysitter to keep you in line, to keep you in track. So it strips out all the emotion to say, look, my offer is 65. You can, you can counter it 75 or 85. I don't care, but my offer is 65. And if you don't want to come to it, that's totally cool. I appreciate your time. Send me another deal like that where I can get the $65,000. And, and the power to say no, the, you always have to have the power to walk away. And if, you, and if you get emotionally invested in it, if it's your first rental and you're like, I just want to get something, you got to be able to say no have no, not worry about it, not get down in the dumps and say, I'm never going to be able to buy anything. You just say, you know what? I tried, I didn't connect. And then you keep it moving to the next deal. And you, you forget that one and you let the realtor know, Hey, I'll be here at 65. So come back to me if you know, I'll be around more than likely, but move on and, and say no and move on and don't get down in the dumps and don't say, well, there, no one can buy a house and the real estate market is this and blah, blah, blah. Just say, thanks for your time. Please keep my number handy if you decide to sell it for 65 and I'm going to go and, and talk to the next, next uh, deal. What you're saying there is basically the data and the numbers and the facts will set you free, <laughs> right? Will set you free from emotion and yep. from negotiation and from, well, the seller countered, the seller did this. We don't, I, I honestly do not care what the seller is doing. What I care is about that I'm going to buy this property for the right price based on the actual data that the actual condition of the house, the actual value of the house, uh, actual cost of the house for me to make it, the cost of the renovations, and then some actual profit for me. They're the facts. That's it. I, I, if the seller, does, the seller does not see my facts, that is, that is irrelevant to me. I'm just going to move on to the next house. So, Clark, yep. that's the acquisition. Okay. But then we get into the renovation. And so right off the top, I want to talk about something that is uh, very, very much misunderstood in this business is permanent. So we buy the house, big old renovation in front of us. Okay. Sometimes the renovation is roofs 
air conditioners, plumbing, um, electrical, and and everything else. Sometimes we've got a, that's what I might refer to as a big renovation. Sometimes the renovation might be just changing out some carpets, changing out some baseboards, changing out some doors, maybe doing a bit of cabinetry, what we call a cosmetic or light renovation. It's very important to know when to go in and get permits because the one thing that will screw your project right up is a <laughs> red tag. Is when you're in the middle of doing something, you haven't pulled a permit, and the city inspector is driving by, and he sees a bunch of vans outside the house. His, you know, his his curiosity is tweaked. I said, you know, I'm going to stop here, have a look what's going on, because that looks like a job site. Boom, you're red tagged because you haven't pulled a permit. Clark, have you ever been red tagged before? Um, I think we both know the answer to that question. Uh, I have been well, red tagged. Um, I, I don't know how many times, three, four, five times. And it's such an elephant in the room, right? Because people are like, well, I don't want to pull permits because then that means that you're going to pay more. You have to pay a general contractor instead of just handyman Joe that lives down next door to be able to replace that. Ultimately, taking shortcuts. And this is this is a lesson that's taken me a long time to learn. And if you asked me six, seven years ago, I would have given you a totally different answer. Hey, slamming that handyman guy. Ultimately, in the long run, you're going to pay for it, even if you get away with it, right? Even if Handyman Joe puts in the kitchen and he does some light plumbing and electrical, ultimately, it's going to come back and bite you in the ass, and you're just going to end up paying for it later, even if the city doesn't catch you or the county, right? So ultimately, if you can do it the right way from the get-go, right, now you don't have to, you can sleep at night knowing that you don't have to worry about the blinds being closed and looking out to see if the uh, city inspector is driving by. More often than not, David, it's not the city inspector that's going to bust you. It's the nosy neighbor next door. They're going to be the one that's like, what's going on? They're making noise. They're, they're annoying to me. They pick up, they call the city, and they come and they shut you down. And now you have to pay double or triple permit fees to the city. Now you're all over their radar. They're looking at you like you're trying to pull something uh, you know, from them. And it just is bad, bad, bad. I've got all the scars, all the wounds. You can't see it, but I've, I've got all the burn marks from, from trying to beat the system. And ultimately, even when I did beat the system, quote unquote, it still burned me later on because the, sh the work was shoddy and I ended up having to go in and redo it again. But now I get to redo it again while the tenant's living there. How happy is a tenant when I get to redo a kitchen or redo plumbing or electrical while a tenant is trying to live their life? It's just yeah. bad, bad, bad. Uh, I could spend the next three hours. I've got all the wounds to, to prove it. What about you, David? Have you gone through that at all? I definitely have. And there's no doubt about it that, you know, there is um, a, a very fine line because there are jobs that are very small and they're just cosmetic in nature. Right. And by and large, you don't really have to get too heavily involved with the city. But anytime you start, you know, introducing the big, the big four, electrical, yep. plumbing, roofing, HVAC, you know, once you start getting into those, that family of work, do yourself a favor. Always use licensed people. Always, 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 always pull a permit. Always close your permit because, you know, those four in particular are, are the ones that just really just need to get permitted. So you're going to meet a lot of people who, um, if you're a newbie, you're going to meet a lot of contractors um, that are, you know, going to try and cut around those corners you're really better off not doing that you know that's just right off the bat get permits it's a little bit slower and quite frankly you know a qualified electrician qualified plumber qualified roofer qualified hvac 
there that that's your team you know you can really scale quickly when you've got a, when you've got a great version of each one of those and then you have a qualified general contractor if you can have those five skills on your team there's no limit how much work and there's no limit to how far you can scale so start off right you know you're always going to be competing particularly in a flip business, you're always going to be competing against guys who are cutting corners left and right. Um, it's my experience that time catches up with them. And it's my experience that um, in, 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 in two or three or four red tags a year, that's, you know, whatever efficiency they got at the front end is not, is not going to play out. Also, you mentioned neighbors. When we're buying a home, now we went through acquisitions already, but remember what your end goal is, right? When, uh, th th we're talking about site concerns here. You might have a beautiful home, and you, let's say you're sitting in California or New York, and somebody's giving you a turnkey deal, and it's, you know, the house looks beautiful. The photographs, the video of the house, the front yard, and the backyard look beautiful. But it is my experience. Remember that it's a tenant or somebody who's going to buy the house who are actually going to be the person who lives in the house. So what is happening next door, across the street, or behind the house is super important. And if you're listening to this, don't underestimate how important this is. If you have the Dukes of Hazard living next door to your house, and they've got like 50 cars parked <laughs> on the lawns. The mechanic shop. You've you got a mechanic shop on the other side. <laughs> Or if you've got a house behind you, and it's like crufts back there. They've got dogs and kennels and, you know, barking all day, all night. They're tearing up the backyard. Every time the tenant opens their back door, there's like snarling wolves on the, <laughs> in the fence next door. Nobody's going to want to live there. If you, you know, if you've got a trucker lives ac directly across the road from you, you can't see this in the video, but he might be parking four articulated trucks on his, on his, on his driveway yeah. every night. And tenants don't want to live in this. So visit the property or at a minimum say, can you show me a picture of both neighbors and the neighbors behind? Can you take a video of that and the neighbors in front? So if you're buying turnkey or, or if you're buying sight unseen at all, A, try and get there. Always because this yeah. is the stuff that determines your outcome in sight. And so just remember, Dukes of Hazard ain't going to work out for you. Plumber shop is not going to work out for you. Mr. Trucker is not going to work out for you. A barking, snarling dogs is not going to work out for you. So, <laughs> you know, watch out for those things. Clark, we talked about the big four, right? Now, a lot of people get in there and they just renovate the HGTV stuff. We see it all the time. Flippers Always. in the market and their properties look beautiful. But then you start looking under the hood. What do you normally see there? You, you typically, especially if you're buying in probably like sub 300 and under, which is where a lot of people will start, um, the houses are going to be older. You know, they're, they're typically not going to be newer houses. So when you have older things, right, no one just randomly wants to just put in new plumbing in their house just because, right? So the only reason they would upgrade it is because they can't take a shower, they can't flush a toilet, things like that, right? Same thing with the electric, right? People don't just randomly want to update their electric when the lights flip on just fine, right? So what happens is those things get deferred. And what will end up happening is a lot of times they become issues down the road 
and they're very pricey. And, and we're going to go through a quick list of things that you need to identify. But here's the reason why you don't want to overlook them. I get it. The obvious reasons you don't want to renovate with a tenant, but here's the financial reason you think you're saving money, David, when you go in, you're like, look, I'm not going to touch the plumbing. It, it works. The electrical's fine. The roof doesn't leak. It's all good. The AC. Here's the reason why. If you're going out and you're buying a property that needs some work, right? You can go out and get the, the renovation loan with the hard money loan, right? So you can essentially kind of fund all the renovation you plan on doing right now you may only want to borrow 20 grand or you may want to borrow 50 grand depending on whatever the scope of work is and whatever the, the lender sees right now if you borrow that 50 grand you get it all done it's done right then you go back to the bank and you get a con you know a uh, conventional loan 20 or 25 percent down and you have basically funded 75% of the purchase plus the renovation all rolled into a ball of wax right and you're on the hook for the 25% now the mistake that everyone makes they're like I don't I'll deal with the plumbing later so they buy the house and instead of financing 75% of that new plumbing 75% of that new roof they end up not doing any of that stuff they buy it they get it and stabilized it's a nice 30 year conventional loan then the tenant calls and says the roof's leaking the plumbing doesn't work and guess what you need to do now you've got a ten thousand dollar plumbing bill but you get to pay dollar for dollar for that ten thousand because you're not able to finance that into the loan so now you get to spend ten grand out of your own pocket for the replumb ten grand fifteen grand so ultimately are you saving money because you're not you're quote unquote not doing it up front and you're just kind of putting lipstick on a pig do it up front because you're only having to spend 25 cents of that dollar and the bank is financing 75 percent of that replump not you and or you can kick the can down the road stick your head in the sand and pay dollar for dollar for that and rip out five years worth of cash flow with that new plumbing that's right. So that's we'll go through this. And just before we get into, you know, the big four and what to watch out for. Now, listen to this carefully. And we're going to give you some micro detail on things that we have learned. It's going to save you money if you listen uh, carefully for the next few minutes. The when you're buying an older home and it, there tends to be vintages of homes, you, you got like 1890 to around 1924, 1925, 19, like 1929, right up to the um uh, the the first um, big depression, War. right? So the Great yeah. Depression, and so the, a lot of houses built between 1890 and 1929. So a lot of these vintage stock are in A-class neighborhoods. They're right downtown. But if you're buying an older home, you're you're really better off doing exactly what Clark said. Get in there, particularly if you're going to be holding it for the long term. You've got one chance before you've got a tenant. Go do all of this now. If you're buying a home that's like a frame home and built or a block home and it's built before 1930, you're better off getting in here when you acquire it. Do all the plumbing, all the electric, you know, all the AC. Do everything that you need to do up front, and then you have a far better ownership experience. If you're buying a home, I generally tend I will only buy an 1890 to, to 1928 home if it's in an A-class neighborhood, because that A-class neighborhood can absorb the extra forty dollars or $50,000 to do these things. If you are buying an older home, let's just call that a, an older home. Let's put it into the older home category. If you're buying an older 1924 home in a C-class neighborhood, good luck with that. Don't run, do it. Just run it fast. Run, because that C-class <laughs> property cannot sustain the physical cost 
of repairing these items or doing these items. There's not enough value in the home for you to even warrant doing it. I will only, only do a full renovation on an older home, and I will only buy an older home in an absolute A-class, up-and-coming A-class neighborhood where values are rising rapidly. So if you're buying in uh, the Northeast, you're buying in a C-class neighborhood, and you're buying an older home that needs all of this work, I would, I would, I would, I would run. I wouldn't walk. I would yeah. run away from a project like that. That's just me. There's other people that will, will contradict that, and that's okay. But in my view, if you have an older home that needs all of these things, only buy it in an A-class neighborhood. Likewise, um, if you did the next uh, geological layer, if you will, in terms of if time and history with homes, tends to be block homes. They generally come in around 1950. That's just after the Second World War. And they go up to around 1975. And in those homes, there's two categories. There's kind of the, the, the pre-1971 homes. You're going to get, you know, you're going to get uh, ungrounded wiring in those homes. You could get a lot of asbestos in those homes. You get lead paint in those homes. And so block homes built between 1970, or excuse me, 1950 and 1968, I tend to stay away from as well. Because there's, there, there's, some, there's some difficulty with those homes. Unless, again, they're in an absolute A neighborhood, then I'll go in and I'll, I'll bother with that expense. However, the Goldilocks in my market is kind of 1971, 1972 block home um, to about, you know, your, your 1982, 83, 84 block home. Because those homes, solidly built, they have grounded wiring, they have clean plumbing, they don't have any cast iron. They have PVC plumbing, and the AC systems are good. I might only have to do the roof. I might have to replace the actual AC, the physical condenser and, uh, and, and air handler. But the, the, the home itself is a pretty simple 1970, 1980s block home. That's perfect. That's Goldilocks for me. Um, and then, obviously, you've got newer homes um, that were built in the 80s and 90s and so on. And these items become less a little bit less concerning but what we should know is that when we're dealing with homes that are um you know 1990 and, and early 2000s a lot of times those houses will need to have new roofs a lot of times those houses are much bigger and so what i like about the older homes is they tend to be smaller in better neighborhoods and efficient right so they're efficiently small so if you have to renovate a 2400 square foot home or a 1400 square foot home well guess what in the 1400 square foot home you might have a better neighborhood you might have higher rent you know you have smaller bedrooms you have less flooring you have less doors you have less painting you have less roof you have less air conditioning you just you have less of everything you might even have a bathroom or two less and so when you're doing a renovation in a good neighborhood on a smaller home it can actually be more efficient than you know these so-called, not even Mac mansions, but just these 24, 25 to 3,000 square foot homes. They, they may be newer. You're going to have less plumbing issues, but you're going to have a lot more just cosmetic renovation. So let's go through the, uh, the boogeyman, if we will, real quick, because not a lot of people talk about this stuff on podcasts. They talk about macro stuff and mindset stuff, but they don't give you anything useful. Plumbing. 
Clark, what do we want to avoid when we're looking at plumbing in older homes? Well, in most, in most older homes, you're going to see in the plumbing, uh, if you see galvanized plumbing, um, which, is, which is very common, uh, it's, an, it's a necessary evil, especially in, in um, just older houses in, in, in our area, um, you, you probably are going to want to budget for a replumb, uh, and the sooner you can do it, the better. Uh, these pipes, they get old, they rust out, and uh, ultimately you can keep patching it. But it's, it's really something that when the plumbing goes out, you think your tenants can be pretty happy when they can't take a shower, when they can't use the restroom. I mean, it's, it's a deal breaker. So it's something that you need to scrutinize on the inspection, uh, the plumbing. And if it's galvanized, you, you really need to look at that and figure out if you want to go back to the seller and ask for a concession. Uh, if you want to, because there, there's just, there's so many problems that can come from galvanized plumbing and it's so prevalent, but ultimately if you end up getting stuck with that uh, galvanized plumbing and you don't adjust for that in terms of putting into your bid scope to renovate in two years from now, you get a call from your tenant saying my plumbing doesn't work and it keeps backing up and you have to go in and dig up the plumbing. You have to then, uh, redo floors and walls and potentially remove places and kitchens and bathrooms. It is an absolute nightmare. And it all starts with galvanized plumbing. So galvanized plumbing, we want to probably think about re removing that when we're doing a renovation. What about cast iron? Because um, cast iron usually can't see it. It's usually underneath the home. Cast right. iron, just so you, for, for most of us, cast iron you will see a lot of times. It's in the drains, the drains from the house. And the sewer is usually cast iron out to the street. Should we, should we budget in for that at the, at the, up, at the up front? Um, I, I, I would think that if, if, if the market will enable you to budget for it, I absolutely would budget for it. Even if you don't have to spend the money right up front, you're going to have to spend it, you know, shortly thereafter. Yeah. And it may, but with, with the drain, that is something that that's through the yard. So you don't necessarily have to go in and do it day one because you can kind of get that replaced and maybe have a tenant and it's more of a minor inconvenience, but ultimately it's just dollars spent. And you need to understand it because there's no such thing as a good surprise in uh, building a rental yeah. portfolio, right? Every time it's a surprise, it's never usually that the tenant just decides to pay you an extra $500 a month just because, right? So you have to be aware of that kind of thing and build that in and, and know that it will be coming in the near future. And just to reiterate, by building it in, you mean it goes into your cost, which means that you're negotiating yeah. that up front and to the point earlier on. That's part of your renovation value, which means that your bid is going to be, in this case, $65,000 in, in, in the case that we exactly. did earlier. Electric. So let's just go quickly, um, Clark, through some items that I think you know buyers need to be aware of. If you're buying an older home prior to kind of 1950, you're most likely going to come in contact with either knob and tube wiring or ungrounded wiring. You're probably going to have to replace both of those. So you come yeah. in and you see these things. Don't let have a wholesaler or a realtor say, yeah, that's a, you know, they, they, I, the old seller got insurance. Don't worry about it. You, you oh, don't yeah. have to worry about it. You, you know, the last seller has insurance. We don't have to think about it. No, no, no. As soon as you buy it, believe me, the insurance company is going to get real interested in that wiring. So allow for that in your budget. It's super important. And by allowing for it in your budget, essentially the seller is paying for it not you that's right. the really important part so um knob and tube underground wiring now electrical panels most people listening to this podcast if you're a beginner know this there are about four or five electrical panels 
that your insurance company will make you replace before they will bind insurance on your home. So, um, you know, I've seen every one of these hundreds of times. If you get in <laughs> and your electrical panel is usually found in a garage, it's got to be a Zinsco electrical panel, a Federal Pacific electrical panel, a Sylvania electrical panel. Always, always, always call your – if you see these electrical panels, I personally will allow them to be in my, in my scope of work and budget to replace them. And if you see these, call your insurance company and say, am I okay with these? I'll say no more other than more often than not, my insurers will say, you need to replace one of those. So Zinsco, Federal Pacific, Sylvania, always know that they're an issue. Now, there is an exception here. I have bought a lot of homes that had aluminum wiring. And people come back and they're like, oh, you know, you know, pants on fire. You need to replace aluminum wiring. Clark, what's your thoughts on aluminum wiring? Do you need to replace it? Um, you know, would I love to build that in the budget as a complete rewire? And if I can get it, then great. But I need to know in my head that there's, there's basically, there's kind of a, a way to get around it through what's called a Lumicons. So, David, kind of talk a little bit about what that actually does with the Illumicons, because the, the aluminum wiring, for a lot of people, if they don't understand what aluminum wire is, it's just a much bigger fire hazard. Um, it was very prevalent, what, in like the 60s and the 70s? Yeah. And so if you do have aluminum wiring, there needs to be something done, because it is a fire hazard. It is the number one thing. Can you imagine buying a house, putting a tenant in, insurance aside, Cost aside, and the house catches on fire, and and they're, you're putting your tenants in danger. Number one is just safety, right? So right. talk to us a little bit about the aluminum wiring. If you are used to use alumicons, okay, which is a much less expensive route than going in and redoing your entire electrical yeah. system, cutting into walls, fixing drywall. What is the uh, the approach that alumicons and will insurance companies accept that? Okay, so always get your licensed electrician to come in and install alumicons. They're like little, they get their wire, they splice the wire, and they put it into this kind of little device that goes into each of your outlets. And it also on the electrical panel. So on both ends of the actual physical wire, they put alumicons on. So on the receptacle end and on the electrical panel end. And they put these alumicons on, they put them on every single uh, circuit in your house, and boom, uh, the problem has been resolved. It could cost up to, you know, seven, eight hundred dollars to do this, get a licensed electrician to do it. But just because you hear aluminum wirings in a house, don't run for the hills. There is a solution. You know, if you hear knob and tube, run for the hills, get it in your budget. Um, you know, if you hear those electrical panels, you know, put that in your budget. Um, but there's other things um, that kind of we watch out for as well, just as we're doing our renovations. Old vinyl siding. When I see a house and it's got vinyl siding around it, all that I can see and all that I can think about is that what's behind it. And nobody, <laughs> in an inspection, in you, can't go, you can't go ripping it off. You know, you don't own the house yet. And then when you do own the house, you don't want to rip it off because you don't want to know what's behind it. <laughs> so it's, I've, seen, I've seen that conundrum a thousand times. So just me personally, I don't tend to buy homes to have old vinyl siding. You know, because they're just hiding something. And I don't have access to the information, so I tend to avoid vinyl siding. And here's another one, windows. You get these older windows, you know, these sash windows, aluminum windows. How much extra rent do you get, Clark, when you replace 
$70,000 worth of windows in a house. How much extra rent do you get for that? You know, it's a good question, and, and I'll give you a slightly different answer, and I, I would say it depends. So if you are in our area in Tampa, St. Pete, where it doesn't get cold very often, um, having older aluminum windows where it's warm most of the year is not that big of a deal, right? So because of that, you're probably not going to – it's going to look better, but are you really going to get any more rent for it? Probably not, right? Um, I used to live in the north part of Florida where it gets colder, and the windows were a little bit a bigger of a deal because of the fact that they were more insulated, which means that they, they don't sweat as much in the wintertime. And uh, so, but ultimately, even then, even when you have, it just means you got to crank up the, the, uh, the heat a little bit more uh, when you have those inefficient windows. But are they really going to pay that much more money in rent, even in, in areas that, that it's more needed? Probably not. Maybe a little bit. But is it worth spending 20, 30 grand to get an extra $12 a month in rent? Probably not. But it also goes back to the uh, kind of, Doing things up front is kind of an ounce of prevention is where the pound of cure, right? So it's like, again, you don't do new windows. That's fine. You don't think it's worth it because you're not going to really get much rent. But eventually those windows are going to get so bad that you're going to need to do them. And then again, because you didn't do it in the initial renovation stage, you didn't finance it in the initial stage. So you're going to be paying dollar for dollar for that $20,000 worth of windows that you're not going to get any more rent for. So those are some things that you really have to think about. And it's like anything. It's like, do you rip the Band-Aid off and just get it done now? And then you don't have to worry about it. You know, you put in those vinyl windows, they last forever, right? you got a lifetime warranty on it. Um, so it's all about pay me now or pay me later, David. I agree. Um, windows, uh, just a quick one on windows. If you're going to be selling the house in the next 15 years, put in new windows. Do you're going to be selling it. Um, because guess what? Windows in 15 years from now are going to be way more expensive than windows are now. And so you'd be glad you <laughs> did. Um, but don't expect a dollar more in rent. But windows, it's a real conundrum because it's a big ticket item. It's, it's, it's as big as a roof. So personally, yeah. when I'm getting in to do a renovation um, on a home that I intend to hold for a long period of time, I'm going to try and get in there and do those windows. Uh, I don't always do them. Um, but by and large, if it's a if it's, particularly if it's an A-class home, I've got to get in there and do those windows right now. Equally, things like everybody, everybody omits proper landscaping, proper exterior presentation, and bringing the home and the flower beds and getting all those old trees and you know garbage rubs that used to be there. Always include that stuff. Like it's just, yeah. it's if particularly if you've got to rent the home, don't leave. You know, I, I have a company that comes in and literally clears out all the bushes and hedges and all the stuff that the previous owner or landlord owned. I take that all out. I build a simple flower bed in its place with like four or five, you know, drought resistant plants. Looks fantastic. It's simple. And then the tenant does not have to maintain it because guess what? Your tenant ain't no landscaper. And so your tenant is going to let everything overgrow. And you know who's going to have to pay for it when it overgrows. So at that, right at the beginning stage, get all of the old, old hedges, old bushes, anything unless it's adding great aesthetic value that grows slowly. But if you're going to be a landlord, you want to take all of this stuff up, up out front. That, that's, a, that's a big deal. Fencing. People, if you're going to be renting your home, Clark, how much, how important is to create a fenced-in backyard in the rental market. Talk to me about that real quick. Well, I mean, there, there's so many different uh, great things from a, a fenced-in backyard, right? It, it typically means that 
you you know you're going to get access to tenants that probably have pets that they don't want their pets to be running away so they have a nice secure area to keep stuff grills uh they can use that as a safe area where they can leave things you can have pets um just having and and also too i think because no one ever budgets for fences half the time the fences are falling down they're half painted they're, they're worn and torn it just gives a feeling to the tenant that the, that the owner just doesn't have pride of ownership when their fence is falling down and it's got brush all growing all over it. When you have that nice new fence and it's painted or it's a vinyl fence and it gives a sense of safety and security to the tenant, they can keep their dog and they're not worried about losing Fido and they're able to keep their, their barbecue and make it more of a home. Guess what happens when a tenant feels like it's home? They tend to like to pay more on time. They tend to like to stay longer because they're starting to build their own kind of home. At the end of the day, you want that tenant to move in and never move out because they're going to look at it like they're their, their own house. They're probably going to put their own touch on things. And it's little things like a falling down fence that really gives the impression to the tenant, this guy doesn't give a crap about this property, so why should I? I couldn't agree with you more. I have spent dare I say a million dollars on fences <laughs> and I'm not kidding and my buyers over the years couldn't care less yeah I'm like yeah I put in a new fence I'm like okay the reason I did that is I wanted to create a great buyer experience for them and I wanted to create a great tenant experience for the tenant none of which benefited me however I understood throughout all of it that a fenced in and a nice fenced in backyard that's reasonably nicely landscaped is going to do exactly what you just said that tenant is going to move in that tenant is going to feel at home now i'm not talking about you know some cheap keeping let's say you get in there and there is a cheap chain link fence where you can see the neighbors to your left to your right behind you and you can just see all the junk in their yard. You can see the overground pool that they have. Or let's say there's a guy and he runs a bike shop next door. He's got 95 bikes parked <laughs> in his backyard. It's still a fenced-in backyard, right? But there's no privacy. So my advice and what I've done it hundreds of times, put in a six-foot-high privacy fence, vinyl or wood, and that just, if you do that, it'll cost you an extra five or $6,000, but you will keep your tenant indefinitely if you do that, um, rather than having them every day, they, every time they walk out their backyard, they got to see, you know, just their, their neighbor's junk. It's a huge it, one. It's not here. I'll give a quick story that we saw what this weekend, right? We get a, a picture from our, our, um, our property manager and there's like six washer and dryers in the backyard of one of our rental properties, right? We went in and put this nice vinyl fence. So nothing is 100% foolproof. And the property manager is like, why do we have six washer and dryers in our backyard? And we're like, I have no clue. And the freaking guy next to us is running a, uh, what, a used appliance business off Craigslist or what, whatever he was doing, right? So nothing is ever 100%, but you're going to be able to scrape out 99% of that, that stuff just by putting in small little touches like a nice, well-put-together fence that gives pride of ownership to the tenant. It's, it's just that simple.
And we have, we're, we're, we're going to try and wrap up here, um, but we have one little segment that, you know, I'm tempted to uh, extend the podcast just a little bit because it's dear to my heart, is uh, we're just going to go on to general contractors. Um, it is, I've seen so many people make a lot of mistakes here. And so it is in your inclination as you're getting started. Say, well, I'm going to get, and here's how I used to do it. I had an electrician who did electrical work. I had a plumber who did my plumbing work. I had a roofer and a HVAC guy who did roofing and HVAC. And then I would have one general contractor and I gave him the responsibility for everything else. Okay. Now I've seen a lot of people over the years, Clark, try and come in and hire a separate painter, yeah. a separate cabinet guy, a separate flooring guy, you know, a separate tiler. As what happens when you what happens when you start bringing all of these extra voices in? Now I have just used my electrical plumber, uh, HVAC and roof was I I have those those guys specifically. I'd have them come in and do their bit, and then I had a general contractor, and he was responsible for tying the whole thing together. And it was one name, one person every single time. Because every time I brought somebody else in, let's say I tried to take something out of his scope of work, like painting. By saving money, well, right? Yeah. Saving money, right? Because my yep. general contractor would charge me five grand More. for painting, but I could get a painter in for three. What yep. happens then, Clark? Well, it becomes a freaking gigantic nightmare. And I have experienced it so many times where you're like, they, you get the bid and the general contractor says five grand for painting. And you're like... <laughs> David, I can get this done for three grand from Tom, you know, my, my handyman painter, right? And yeah. what happens is that now you're diluting down the general contractor because you're stripping out everything that, that he, and he can do the whole thing, right? And what people don't realize is that there is a order to which you have to do the renovation, right? Like, do you paint first? Do you put floors in? Do you do baseboards first, then floors? Do you put in the doors first? And, and what happens is that when you start subbing out each little piece, to everything because you're trying to save every single dollar on that. What ends up happening is they run into each other, they're working at the same time, and they only, only, only give a shit about the thing they're there to do. So the baseboard guy only cares about baseboards, and if there's any extra amount of work that he has to do to make it right, he doesn't care because he's just checking that box that I did baseboards for the day, and then it just it creates chaos. And if you want to create chaos, then you should absolutely go to each individual thing on that punch list and on that construction bit and sub it out and get the cheapest contractor or handyman for each individual thing. You may have 10, 15 different guys and your life will be ruined before it ever gets started. So I've done it before. I raise my hand. I am guilty as all. And uh, so talk to us a little bit about what happens if you don't do that, David. Well, I, I, I raise my hand at being guilty in that over the years, trying to be more efficient by bringing in a painter. It's a good example. And all chaos breaks loose because I don't know if you can see me, but I'm, I, you know, I'm crossing my hands and both of my fingers are pointing in different directions. Everybody starts blaming each other for everything. I didn't do that. Something got stolen. That wasn't me. It must have been the painter. Yeah. Somebody left the doors open overnight and, 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 and you know, the, Someone broke in. Materials got stolen. Yeah. Um, anything that goes wrong at all in that in that job site is nobody's responsibility anymore. 
you, you know, you don't have just a general contractor who's overall responsible and he knows the sequence of the project. So he knows who he needs to have on site and when he needs to have people on site at what time. Guess what? People stop showing up. They're like, well, I got there and the painter was there. So my guys just went off to another job. <laughs> now you've just lost a day. And yeah. so I'll come back when your painter is done. But then your painter goes there one day and say, oh, I saw that the roofers were there and their cars were outside. I didn't I know where to park. So I went off and I did a different job. So now your general contractor is not coming because your painter's there and your painter's not coming because your roofer's there. And yeah. so chaos, absolute chaos. Identify a general contractor to do everything outside of roofing, electrical, plumbing, and air conditioning. Have him do every single thing else, including landscaping, including the fence, including painting, including replacing those front windows. You have everything. The flooring. Don't have your individual flooring guy come in because he's a little bit cheaper than your GC. Because all of this is part of a puzzle. And so use a general contractor, pay him, what he's, pay him the value he's worth, and he'll get that project done two months Wait in the long run, way cheaper and with a considerably less stress and a higher quality product because you have one person whose name is on the project, their quality is down to them. And you've got when you start to do punch list items, you're not calling, you know, 50 people, you're calling one guy, you know, hey, Derek, you need to come over and do this, 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 and this. You're not calling five people trying to get them to come back on site. Trust us on this one. Use one contractor, get pay him what he's worth. Don't try and beat him up too much. They're worth their weight on gold. Uh, honest, hardworking contractor, right? So, Clark, um, you know, project managers, you don't even need a project manager if you've got a great, if you've got a great general contractor after you've done a couple of jobs with them, you can just leave that contractor do his thing and he'll just, you know, check in with them from time to time. It also eliminates, so if you have, People from all different scopes of work doing all different jobs, you're going to need to hire a general, or you're going to have to hire an in house project manager, right? right. How much does that Absolutely. cost? It, it, it could, I mean, it, it's, it's basically going to be more expensive than just hiring the general contractor to do it right and just pay his slightly elevated prices. And I think to, to what I'm hearing you say, and it comes down to me to one word, and this is so important, and that one word is ownership. If you hire a general contractor, to, prov to provide you a finished, nice, completed product. He has to own the entire job. So if the flooring isn't done right or the paint or this, guess what? You get to pick up the phone and you call one person, right? If you decide that you want to piecemeal everything together like we alluded to earlier, there is absolutely zero ownership in that project. So if there's something wrong, you call this guy, he points to the next guy, and you get to be in a point in circle, and it's just a, a horrible circle. So Yes, you may pay a little bit more for the general contractor to come in and do it right, but A, now you have one point of contact. He owns the job. So I don't care if the toilet is screwed up or the paint is bad. You call one person, and then he goes down and fixes that problem. I just did it. I, I bought a duplex last year up in the Panhandle of Florida. I'm not there. And I, everything we're talking about, I made all those mistakes where we got an initial bid and it was like 30 grand for a GC to come in and take ownership of the whole property or the project, right? Well, I was like, ah, no. Let me start looking at his bid. Let me start pulling things out. And, and we ended up doing it for about uh, 18 or 20,000, quote unquote, if you can see me on video. Guess what ended up happening? It took us about nine months. My holding costs on that project were $2,500 a month. 
It took us an additional probably six months to get it done. And we ended up spending probably an additional 5000 over and above because every time that we needed a small thing done, it was painful because we had to go find a new guy that could install a hot water heater or do a small plumbing fix or all these different things that if I just had one guy that took ownership and said, I need a fully functional bathroom, right? It needs to look good. It needs to work. And until it gets to that point, that's on you, right? But because I made those same mistakes, it took me a lot longer. And guess what happened in the last six to nine months? Interest rates have gone so much higher. So now my loan is almost 8% instead of 6%. So now if we want to expand the amount of extra money I spent over the next 20 years of the length of the loan, uh, it, that, that mistake it will probably cost me fifty to $75,000. Okay. Clark, what happens when you pay peanuts? I don't know, David. What, what, what happens when I pay peanuts? You get monkeys. <laughs> okay, we leave it there. We have an exciting <laughs> episode next because we're going to go on to the next stage of, of this process, which is you bought the home, you've underwritten it, you've renovated it, and we hope today's podcast was useful. In our next uh, episode, we're going to get into ownership, the stage of ownership. Um, we've got a lot of tips. We've got a lot of good stuff on the ownership as you go on and start building up a portfolio. Things within ownership that you might want to think about. But for today, we're way over time. Uh, but I think that that was worth it. Um, I didn't want to what? pull this episode early simply because, you know, what we were talking about was valuable. So uh, thank you for making it this far, Clark. I hope you've had fun. I have. I'm enjoying my time here in this beautiful Florida weather, and uh, we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks so much, guys. Enjoy the, enjoy the rest of your day. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Burn Your Boats podcast with Clark Lunt and David Shaw. We would love to hear from you. Please reach out at burnyourboatswealth.com with comments, questions, and if you have a topic you would like Clark and David to discuss on an upcoming episode. We would very much appreciate it if you took the time to rate and review Burn Your Boats podcast on your favorite podcast listening app. And make sure to follow and share on social media. Content in Burn Your Boats podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not legal or financial advice. Please review our legal disclaimer at burnyourboatswealth.com. Thank you for listening.